Thank you, and once again, good morning to students and teachers of the Word of God. We are continuing our studies on the matter of arguments presented to prove that Jesus Christ was not deity. And we've been through ten of these arguments and answered them from the Word of God. We'll continue with the 21 objections of the deity of Christ, and also continue with the scriptures that deal with these subjects. Now, on these broadcasts, we have to go at a pretty good rate of speed to cover the material, and I'm sure that some of you do not have time to turn to all the references as we give them, so it might be profitable for you to take paper and pencil and take out just a few minutes during the day, about 27 minutes altogether, and study with us, and write down these references and then check them very carefully. The Theological Seminary of the Air is not a hackneyed pulp type of broadcast that subjects the whole Bible to eight or nine verses. Uh, we never deal with less than 20 verses per broadcast, and the 34 broadcasts that deal with the proper subject of Christology will cover well over 340 verses. We've already covered, of course, more than 120 verses dealing with God the Father, and the future lessons we'll study in pneumatology and uh, Christology, anthropology, angelology, eschatology, soteriology, hamartiology, and other subjects will cover well over 3,000 verses. And you may have noticed the difference between this broadcast and some other broadcasts in that our purpose need broadcast is to present what the Bible says about itself and not merely what it is presumed to teach. We have in America today a great rash of uh, radio programs and television programs and other programs and books and tracts and pamphlets and lectures and lecturers that try to subject the whole Bible to Acts 2.38 or subject the whole Bible to Mark 16.16 16, or make the whole Bible line up with 1 Peter 3.21. We have these wild people that make all the Bible try to line up with 1 Corinthians 15 about talking about being baptized for the dead and all that obscene, vulgar, blasphemous nonsense. And the people who study this kind of foolishness never even check the chapter to see what the word for the dead means. For the dead in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 had no reference to any individual that died. Not once in the entire chapter is there even a hint that it had a reference to anybody that just died. As a matter of fact, a matter of fact for the dead and from the dead, that expression occurs in 1 Corinthians 15 more than 12 times. And not once does it refer to anything that you've ever heard it taught to mean. And so in these broadcasts, we're presenting what the Bible says about itself and not what it is presumed to teach. The great major structures of religious heresy that pass off for denominations in America today, many are little more than sects and cults that indulge and have a reverie in private interpretation. And so in these broadcasts, we're bringing you Scripture on Scripture, what the Scriptures say about the Scriptures. We're not going to be so foolish as to make the whole Bible back up Matthew 16, 18. That'd be the height of stupidity. Or make the whole Bible back up some verse in John 20 that spoke about whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted, and whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. Uh, that uh, vulgar and blasphemous way of teaching lies has to go. And the quicker you get rid of it, the better off you're going to be. And the quicker you learn to study the whole Word of God as it stands, verse for verse, the better off you're going to be. We have broadcasts and telecasts today in America when a man gets up and spends uh, 15 and 20 minutes at a time telling people that people don't understand the Bible and don't read the Bible right, and if they really knew the truth, it would be terribly shocking, and then write in and find out what it is. 
Well, that's a kind of a Mickey Mouse type of exegesis. If you know what it is, son, why don't you tell us? You see what I mean, Jelly Bean? <laughs> In Plain Words Meets Broadcast, we're bringing you verse on verse, line upon line, precept upon precept, what the whole Bible says about any other passage in it. And we're certainly not going to be so foolish as some people are to talk about the kingdom and the kingdom and the kingdom and the kingdom without telling you that there are more than 50 verses of the Bible that deal with it directly and 800 that deal with it indirectly and 2,000 that mention it and not once did the kingdom of heaven ever refer to salvation one time. You see what I mean? You get the biggest mess you ever saw by listening to some of these fellows and going in kind of a passive state and not checking out what they say Scripture with Scripture. For example, have some of you people ever picked up Acts chapter 2 and read it? Boy, that's an eye-opener. Boy, anytime anybody tries to tell you Acts 2.38 the plan of salvation, you ought to open, Act, up, up, open up Acts chapter 2 and read it. You talk about a revelation man. Why, there's nobody in Acts chapter 2 that says, What must I do to be saved? They're not even discussing spiritual salvation in Acts chapter 2. Did you ever read it? Why, in Acts chapter 2, there isn't one Christian in the entire chapter. The term Christian doesn't occur in your Bible until Acts chapter 11, verse 26. Now, isn't that an eye-opener? You realize in Acts chapter 2 that message is aimed entirely at Jews and Jewish proselytes? Did you read it? Do you realize the initial evidence of the baptism of the Holy Ghost is not speaking with other tongues, but it's a wind? Did you read it? Boy, you talk about an eye-opener. There's nothing in the world that gives you light on the Scripture like the Scripture. Do you realize that not one convert in Acts chapter 2 spoke in tongues? Not one convert. There were 3,000 people saved, and not a one of them spoke in tongues. Did you read it? You see what I mean? Now, in this broadcast, our job is to tell you what the Scriptures say about themselves. And we're not going to present some little harebrained private denominational flip switch or some little emotional devotional flapdoodle that's built upon somebody having an emotional spasm when the nervous system breaks down and goes around hostile, a shantai, untie, bowtie, maho, bone, blubber, blabber, our job is to teach you what the Bible says about itself and not what it is presumed to teach. Now, one more time with feeling, children. There is no church in your town that practices Acts chapter 2. Is that clear? You say, Brother Ruckman, how can you say such a thing? Read the last six verses. Now, read it. Don't you get mad at me, you heretic. Read it. Don't you blow your stack and swivel and strip your gears and burn out your clutch plate. Read it. I go up now in this country preaching all year round. I've held more than 700 uh, Bible conferences in more than 500 churches. I have never been anywhere in the United States in a church that practiced Acts chapter 2, even though they profess to practice it. You say, where do you get that from? Read the, read the last five verses, stupid. Don't argue. You don't know what you're talking about anyway. Read it. Now, some of you folks are terribly upset about now, aren't you? At my tone of voice, my manner. Do you know why you are? Because you're a closed-minded bigot, that's why. And you haven't read it. 
And you're not going to. And what's worse, some of you unsaved elders are going to go right on lying to people and telling your church is the church that is found in Acts chapter 2, and none of you practice the last five verses, and you never have, and you never will, so quit your lying. You say, who are you talking about? Anybody that has a shoe that fits. Now, I made a shoe. If it fits, wear it. And if it don't, pass it on. But don't tell us in Bible teaching that this verse means this, or this verse teaches this, when the verse doesn't say what you're saying it means or teaches. In Acts chapter 2, they all split their property and possessions and divide even. Are there any churches in your town that practice that? If there are, are they worshiping at the Jewish temple in Jerusalem seven days a week? You see what I mean, string bean? I'll tell you, my dear friend, there's all the difference in the world between a man standing up and saying, I'll be the Bible from cover to cover, and believing it. And it's all the difference in the world in a man saying, our church is the one true church that Christ founded, and we practice apostolic New Testament Christianity, and checking him out in the Word of God. Now, this week we continue our studies on the 21 reasons given by agnostics, heretics, skeptics, atheists, infidels, students of Orient religion, PhDs, and assorted clowns against Jesus Christ being God. The eleventh argument is Christ could not be God because the Father gave him power, according to Matthew 28, verse 18, where Christ said, All power is given to me in heaven and earth. But in Philippians 2, verse 5 to 8, the Son surrendered this power, and God restored it to him at the resurrection. It was always his power, but he voluntarily yielded it during his 33 years on this earth. Read Philippians 2, 5 to 10. The twelfth argument is that Christ could not be God because he was made Lord by God in Acts 2.36. But it is not made in the sense of a promotion, for though he always was God, the Father takes this opportunity to proclaim this fact to the Jewish nation. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, it is a public statement that God has officially declared Christ as Lord to the people who crucified him. The thirteenth objection, Christ could not be God because he is subject to God, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 28. But that won't work because that doesn't refer to Christ's nature, but rather to his position. Christ voluntarily chooses, voluntarily chooses subjection. He was not imposed on him against his will. He volunteered. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 28 and 29, you're dealing with a time when Christ himself will yield up his dominion and his position and his power to the Father, but certainly there was no reference there to Christ's nature, which, of course, was deity. The fourteenth objection given to the deity of Christ is that Christ could not be God because Christ died and God is immortal and cannot die. Of course, in 1 Timothy 1.17 we read about this and in Luke 23.46. But Jesus as a man died. Jesus as God could not die and did not die. Hebrews 2.9, Hebrews 2.14. It is the physical body that dies. The Spirit certainly did not die, for it returned to God. When Christ dies on the cross, he says, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. 
That that is, no, his soul didn't die. It went down through the earth and came back up. The only part of Jesus Christ that died was the human part, the man part, the flesh part. And even that part did not corrupt. For Peter says in Acts chapter 231 and 227, his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. The fifteenth objection given is that Christ could not be God because he was conceived by the Holy Ghost. Matthew 1.18. As a creature of the Holy Spirit, he is therefore neither God nor Creator. But again, we have to keep constant in mind the two natures of Christ. The humanity of Jesus Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The deity of Jesus Christ always existed. Now we're going to talk about this much more in about four broadcasts where we'll discuss the two natures of Christ. We're going to go in great detail now in our next broadcast and the next one following that, and two more subsequent broadcasts, when we talk about the relationship of the Son to the Father and the pastures that deal with the humanity of Christ. We're speaking here of the deity of Christ. You notice how many times in our discussion of the deity, when objection comes up about Christ's deity, we have to answer it by referring to Christ's humanity. This, of course, is Christ's dual natures, which he himself taught. He not only claimed to be the Son of God, but you will notice his favorite expression for himself in the Gospels is the Son of Man, the Son of Man. Anybody who reads their Bible at all knows that the Bible presents a human genealogy of Jesus Christ as the Son of Man, Luke chapter 3, tracing his ancestry back to the first man, Adam. Then anybody who knows the Bible knows that In John, no genealogy is given, for the genealogy begins with God. In the beginning with the Word, and the Word was with God. Christ, therefore, has two natures. Now, should this be very difficult for a believer? I mean, after all, Christian friend, if you're saved, don't you have two natures? Romans 6, 7, and 8. Don't you have two natures? Galatians 5 and 6. Tell me something. How could a born-again child of God with two natures have any trouble understanding the two natures of Christ? And one other thing, how could any unsaved man, no matter how long he'd been in the ministry, or how long he'd been preaching or teaching the Bible, how could any unsaved, unregenerate sinner, no matter how long he'd been in the ministry, how could he ever possibly understand the deity of Christ when the thing is bound up with the humanity of Christ and Christ's two natures, and the unsaved preacher, priest, bishop, pope, deacon, or elder doesn't have two natures. You see how the snow drifts? The Bible says, The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. All right, the sixteenth reason given. Christ could not be God because he said in John 20, verse 17, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Therefore the two, Christ and God, must be quite distinct. But the Father and the Son are two persons only, not two gods. In John 10:30, Christ says, I and my Father are one, not two. See also John 17, 11, John 17, 21, and John 17, 22. 
Now, one can see in discussing these matters the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ and the two natures of Christ and the Trinity, that he's going to get off immediately into snares and troubles and problems presented by unsaved people who are trying to be Bible teachers. The first of these unsaved people come to the Bible and pick it up and say, well, since they're obviously distinct and separate, they're two gods. There's Jehovah God the Father who created this lesser God, God the Son. And, of course, that's unscriptural nonsense. Then you have another person coming along, an unsaved man who can't understand it, and he bungles it the other way and says, well, obviously, they're one. Therefore, the Son is the Father, the Father is the Son, Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Son, Jesus is the Holy Ghost. Therefore, all that's there is Jesus. And, of course, that's nonsense. Now, these two deep ends of theological uh, snares, these two deep ends of theological perversions, can only be arrived at by rejecting some portion of the Word of God. For the Russellite or Rutherfordite rejects all the passages that equate Jesus Christ with the Father. The oneness, holiness, oneness, 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 oneness person rejects all the passages that deal with them as separate and distinct persons. The born-again, saved Bible believer accepts all the verses that deal with all the passages everywhere they speak of either nature. And this gives us the biblical picture of the deity of Christ and his humanity, his two natures. The seventeenth objection is that Christ could not be God because he prayed to the Father and addressed him as the only true God. John 17:3 and 1 Corinthians 8:6. But this objection ignores the fact that the Son coexists with the Father. They are one. They are one in nature, but distinct as to office and responsibilities. That the Father and the Son are indivisibly linked together is clear from Matthew 11:27, Luke 10:22, and John 12:45. The eighteenth objection is that Christ could not be God, for if he were, then there would be more than one God. But we spent two entire broadcasts on that subject, showing you that there is one God manifest in three persons. The nineteenth objection is that Christ is not God because he was only an idea, a will, or the purpose of God, having no material existence or material form in the beginning. But this is a play on the words in John 1, 1 and 2. Verse 1 answers it definitely and authoritatively by saying, The Word was God. This heresy that Christ was only a spirit being or a spiritual idea was dealt with by the early church in the first and second century, and in order to deal with it, they dealt with a bunch of people called doceticists, who practiced doceticism. The docetic idea of Jesus Christ was the heresy that Christ either had to be a spiritual being, a phantom, who wasn't real, or if there was such a real person walking around, he was not really Christ, he was a man named Jesus. And uh, the Christ. <laughs> Did you ever hear that before? And the Christ descended upon Jesus at his baptism, the spirit part of the Godhead, and then left him at his crucifixion when he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This ancient heresy is called doceticism and was dealt with at the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. and settled. In spite of the fact that this docetic heresy was declared to be a false teaching in 325 A.D., you will still find it taught in the New American Standard Version in Luke chapter 23, where the dying thief addresses Jesus Christ, 
not by his divine title, Lord, but by his human name, Jesus, showing that the Christ has left him. This makes the new ASV one of the outstanding blasphemous Bibles of the day, recommended by fundamentalists and conservatives alike. First of all, teaching two gods, John 1.18, and then teaching the departure of the Christ from Christ losing his deity at the crucifixion in Luke 23. These two heresies were called by the primitive church Arianism and Asceticism. They were both officially condemned by an official church council meeting to discuss that subject in particular. They have been both reinstalled in the New American Standard Version recommended by nearly every Christian college in America. Man, let me tell you something. If you want a sign of apostasy or the Second Advent, don't you worry about the earthquakes, famines, and wars, and rumors of wars. Just look at the Bibles recommended by the fundamentalists. And you'll know where you're at, son. All right. Objection number 20. Christ could not be God because in John 14:28 he says, My Father is greater than I. But this refers to his position. It has no reference to his nature or his being. Positionally, Jesus had chosen a position in subjection to his Father. Their natures are still one. The last and final objection against the deity of Christ is that Christ is not God, for though he is one with God, that refers merely to one in pastoring or shepherding, teaching and judgment, but not one in the Godhead. This won't work at all. The Father was the Jehovah of the Old Testament, Psalm 23, 1, and Jesus in the New Testament, John 10, 11. The Father and the Son are one God in two persons, coexisting as one Jehovah God, and in the book of Revelation, Jesus is said to be the Jehovah of Jehovah's, the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, of capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Jesus Christ is God. He was Jehovah manifest in the flesh. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, and the Bible reveals him as God Almighty. And although we cannot satisfactorily answer all the queries of Christ rejecting unsaved, hell-bound, self-righteous, demoniac sinners, we can believe from what the Scriptures say about themselves that Jesus was God manifest in the flesh and lives forevermore as God Almighty. In our next two broadcasts, we'll take up the relationship of the Son to the Father. Until then, may the Lord bless you, and good day.